Part 5. The Many Folk Farmers The majority of Luang Por's lay disciples and daily visitors were peasant farmers. Speaking to a group of local people, he turned to a favourite theme, knowing what's what, not living blindly from day to day, but bearing in mind the guiding principles laid down by the Buddha. So many Buddhists are still deluded and superstitious. From my reflections, I'd say that it's through not having grasped the main principles of Dhamma that they've gained no real ease in their lives. Just like people farming the soil without understanding about strains of rice or crop rotation, they don't know how to pick out what's of use to them and what's not. Superstitions and unexamined beliefs were not confined to religious matters. The prejudice against education, the belief that it was a waste of time, that it unnecessarily deprived families of the labour of their younger members, provided a good example of a belief that seemed well-founded at one time in the past and had now been thoroughly disproved. He urged his audience to reflect on how things that once had seemed like common sense and were agreed upon by all could be so completely mistaken. When I was a small boy, they built a school in the village, and when officials came around registering all the children, some parents hid their children away. If children who did go to school failed an exam, their parents would say, Good, now you can leave school graze the buffaloes, and look after your younger brothers and sisters. And how are those children doing now? When they go into town, they can't read the signs. In the market, they're easily cheated. Dealing well with the raw materials that life gives you required a knowledge of guiding principles, like working with wood. The old sages said that no matter how smooth you whittle a piece of wood, if you don't get the right angles on it, it won't look beautiful. Think about that. Is it true? However smooth it might be, it doesn't look beautiful. But if you get good angles on it, even if it's not so smooth, it's beautiful. Without guiding principles, Lung Po said, trying to make up a parcel, you tie yourself into it. Listening to the Dhamma helped one to reflect on right and wrong good and evil, and to learn how to distinguish between them. But understanding the drawbacks of unwise actions and the benefits of wise actions did not ensure protection from defilements. Indeed, some defilements were provoked by the very effort to do good. Lung Po said that this point would be understood by anyone who had ever planted lettuces. You prepare the bed with a hoe and then you plant the seeds. You water them, put down some fertilizer, and the lettuce grow beautifully. But there's a problem. This same fertilizer doesn't only promote the growth of lettuce, it promotes weeds as well. So what are you going to do? Are you going to pull up everything, weeds and lettuce as well? Or are you going to leave everything as it is? You can't do either. If you want to have anything to eat, you have to pull out the weeds and leave the lettuce. That's what makes it hard work. You do good 
but the bad comes bundled with it. You try to take out the badness, but when you get down to it, you find that your desire for the good is accompanied by laziness. Desire and laziness come together. But if you believe in what your laziness is telling you, you'll never get around to doing good. So you must try to go against your old habits and patiently withstand the defilements. Teachers Luang Po put particular effort into teaching visiting groups of school teachers. He saw the importance to society of high standards in the teaching profession and was conscious of living through a period in which those standards seemed in decline. There were certainly some fine and dedicated teachers still to be found. And yet, in an increasingly materialistic society, where the monetary rewards of a career had become the primary measure of its worth, the status of the schoolteacher was declining. Teaching had become less and less attractive as a career and had become the fallback option for those who could not succeed in more lucrative pursuits. An increasing number of people were entering the teaching profession without any real passion for teaching. In the countryside, teachers were notorious for living beyond their means and male teachers in particular were often given to heavy drinking and gambling. Luang Po had a favourite opening question to visiting groups of teachers. Oh, your teachers. Do you only teach others or do you teach yourselves as well? In Luang Po's view, teaching children was not restricted to passing on information but included acting as a good role model to them. Some teachers complained to me that the children were hard to teach and quarrelled a lot and so I asked them whether the teachers all lived together in harmony. They didn't reply. So I told them it was understandable that the children quarrelled because they were still children and didn't know any better, but for the teachers to be quarrelling was unacceptable. By the late 1960s, with the Vietnam War at its height, Western influence in Thailand was at an all-time high and was often blamed for a decline in the levels of unquestioning deference that many authority figures considered was owed to them by their subordinates. This became a major issue in universities. When teachers asked Luang Po for advice on dealing with disrespect from their pupils, he would tell them that times had changed. Now teachers could no longer expect respect as their due. They had to earn it. The way to earn it was not just to say the right things, but to train themselves so that their students trusted and looked up to them. If you can't teach yourself, he said, how can you teach others? Take the Buddha as your model. Once, at the end of a Dhamma talk, the Buddha asked Venerable Sariputta a question in front of the whole monastic community. Sariputta, he said, do you believe what I just taught? Venerable Sariputta was wise. He raised his hands in Anjali and replied, Not yet, Lord. On hearing this answer, the Buddha praised him, saying, Good, Sariputta, wise people shouldn't believe anything too easily. Whenever you hear something new, the first thing you should do is go away and reflect on it with wisdom. Only when you see that it's correct and well-reasoned should you believe it. 
That's the way of the sages. See how skillful the Buddha was? If it was us these days, and one of our students didn't believe what we said, we'd probably lose our temper and chase them out of the classroom. That's what usually happens. So, all of you, teach yourselves as well as others. Then you won't suffer on account of your students. Lung Po would often expand upon this theme of being a role model. Be like the master mold that they use for Buddha amulets. Have you ever seen one? A single mold is enough for a great many amulets. Molds are made with real expertise. The face, the eyebrows and the cheeks are hollowed out precisely, without distortions or indentations, in order to make beautiful Buddhas. All of you teachers are like molds for your students. You must make yourself beautiful by cultivating the virtues of a teacher and by abiding at all times by the moral standards and correct behavior appropriate to a leader. If there was to be a return to a higher standard of morality in society, teachers would have to lead the way. They were closest to the children and had great influence over them. Children are like vines. They have to climb up trees. If one tree is a few centimeters away, and another is ten meters, which one do you think the vine will climb up? Luang Po challenged teachers with a high standard. They needed to be constantly mindful of their behavior. Don't just teach them with words. Standing, walking, sitting, your speech, everything should be a teaching for them. Then the children will emulate you. They're quick-minded, quicker than adults. Turn towards the moral teachings and take them as guiding principles. Be devoted to them. Don't get so intoxicated with material things that you just become devoted to having a good time. Fulfill your responsibilities as a leader and teacher just as the Lord Buddha did. He illustrated this point with the Jataka tale. Once, a certain king possessed a thoroughbred horse. This horse was quick and nimble, intelligent and easy to train. One day, a new groom came to look after it. The new groom had a deformed leg and walked with a limp. The horse saw him walking around every day and, being a quick learner, before long began walking in the same way. The horse thought that the way the groom walked was a teaching. Soon the horse had lost its graceful movement and went lame. A doctor was called in to treat the horse. He searched for splinters in the horse's hoof but could find nothing. And although he gave the horse medicine, it continued to walk with a limp. Then the Buddha-to-be came to look. He investigated the stable and the surroundings thoroughly and could see no cause for the horse's condition. Then, when he saw the groom, he realized what had happened. He suggested that the king change the groom and find someone without a limp. The horse observed the replacement groom walking around, started to copy him, and before long it regained its beauty and grace. Scientists and Academics 
one day, a certain scientist came to visit Luang Po. Speaking as someone who had practiced meditation and felt qualified to make a comparison, he was of the opinion that as a means of realizing the truth of things, science offered a path that was more effective and more verifiable than Buddhist training. Luang Po was unimpressed. Don't you think it's possible, he asked, that you're putting forth this claim without a full knowledge of the results of Buddhist training? He gave two similes. It was like a man putting one short arm down a hole who concludes that the hole only goes as far as his arm. It was like a short-sighted man who concludes that there are no such things as aeroplanes in the sky because he's never seen one. On other occasions, he spoke of the study of Buddhist teachings as being the keystone for the study of all other academic subjects, including science. Without Buddhist wisdom, study of any other subject might lead to as many drawbacks for human well-being as advantages. Supported by Buddhist wisdom, drawbacks would be minimized and advantages maximized. At a time when education, based on Western models, was being promoted as the great panacea for Thai society, certificates and university degrees conferred great status. Lung Po would try to puncture an uncritical belief that book learning was in itself an invariably good thing. Some people study so much that they become stupid, impossible to talk to. When they go up high, it's too high, and when they come down low, it's too low. They never see the middle way. Do you think that just because you've studied a lot, that now you're smart? Look closely. There's such a thing as being too smart. Strong attachments to views and self-importance arise. You stop seeing other people as human beings. You think that you're more powerful, better, more brilliant. And that way of thinking inevitably leads to contempt for others. Thinking that you're superior to other people leads to nothing but trouble. If you see a peasant farmer and see how you are no different from him. If you see an old person and think that one day you will be like that. If you see children in a state of confusion and you think that you used to be like that. If you bring things inwards and reflect on yourself in this way, then it's easy to understand the Dhamma. A Thai proverb has it that if held in front of the eye, a single hair can conceal a mountain. The teacher says that everything is impermanent, unsatisfactory and without self, and you say, you know, you know, but really you don't have a clue. With that kind of knowing, you carry on living like a fool, and then you die. Luang Po commented on the reasons he believed people who had high academic qualifications were often hard to teach. He said it was what happened when people studied to accumulate knowledge rather than to remove ignorance and defilement. What they don't realize is that if they have a bachelor's degree, then so do their defilements. If they have a master's degree, then their defilements have got one too. And if they have a doctorate, their defilements do also. He had a biting simile for people who have pursued academic studies to a high level 
but, having done nothing to educate their higher faculties, are still in the thrall to their appetites. It's like a vulture that flies high in the sky, but when it's hungry, swoops down and gorges on a rotting corpse. Troubled Spouses The Mechi section in Wat Bapong provided women experiencing serious marital problems with a refuge. When distressed women came to ask Lung Po's permission to stay in the monastery, it was common for them to be so upset that they would pronounce themselves thoroughly disillusioned with life in the world and ready to become nuns. After some opportunity for a little quiet reflection, however, most would return home. Lung Po would sometimes joke at how such a professed determination to leave the world could disappear so quickly. People ask why the guest house in the nun section is kept empty. It's kept like that for people who are disillusioned with the world to come and stay. The building was falling apart and I had it repaired for these women. Some are strongly disenchanted, but they don't stay long. One night and they're gone. With women angry with their husbands, he was fatherly, advising them not to make important decisions in the heat of the moment that they might soon come to regret. He said that it was better not to storm out of the house, shouting, I'm never coming back, I'd rather die. The pleasure that came from speaking in absolutes was not worth the embarrassment that would come when feelings had cooled down. Don't say you're going for good. Don't say you're never coming back. Say you don't want to talk about whether you're going to come back or not. But for the present, you want to go to the monastery and think things over and calm down. Say you're going to stay at Wat Bapong with Lung Po for two or three days or so because you feel unhappy. Just say that much for the time being. Don't go for the whole thing straight away. Don't say you want a divorce. Before long, you may well want to go back. Don't believe your mind. The elderly. Elderly people, Lung Po said, had to learn, like him, to be intelligent with regard to their stupidity. As he passed sixty, he said, his memory started to play tricks on him. He would mean to call one novice over, and the name of another would come out of his mouth. It was as if his brain was announcing very quietly that it was taking retirement. He had had to learn to allow for this. For lay people, taking into account the limitations and distortions of perception brought on by age was important if they were going to avoid conflicts in the home. You're their parents. You brought them up. You had to be really smart to do that, smarter than them. But that intelligence turns into its opposite. As you get older, that sense of being the one who knows what's right and wrong, of being more intelligent than your children, makes you stupid. You argue with your children, and you won't admit it when you're wrong, and everyone's emotions get stirred up. Your children are intelligent and sharp. They get fed up with you and walk away. When you're arguing with your grandchildren, you're even more sure that you're right. You won't let them contradict you at all. In fact, they've got a point 
but you've got to win the argument. That's not the Dhamma. It was important for elderly people to face up to the decline in their faculties. Are your eyes as good as they used to be? Are your ears? Is your body? Do you have as much energy as you used to? As good a memory? Is anything as good as it used to be? Why don't you look at that? Reflecting in this way is called being heedful, being alert to the way things are. Ignoring the truth of things is being heedless. A heedless person is like a dead person, so don't be heedless. Homes for the elderly did not exist at that time. One recourse for a family chafing under erratic and authoritarian elders was to encourage those elders to devote themselves to good deeds in their old age and leave worldly affairs to the next generation. Grandad becoming a monk and grandma a nun was one acceptable way out of the problem. In some cases, it's so bad the family can't take it anymore. The parents abuse their authority and don't allow the children to dispute anything they say. Sons, daughters-in-law, daughters, sons-in-law, they're intelligent, and they start making suggestions. Mum, Dad, why don't you go and live in the monastery? They try to encourage you to go to the monastery because they can't take your nagging anymore. They'll build you a kuti in the monastery. They'll pay for everything to make sure you're comfortable there. It's better than having you nagging them all the time at home. Let the monks teach you. Even then, grandma and granddad often don't get the message. But the family are determined to take you, to entrust you with the old monk at the monastery. It happens. Be careful. It was Dhamma practice that could prevent relationships in the family from becoming riven with conflict. It started with giving up the fight to maintain a former state of affairs and by humbly accepting the changes brought about by age. Your urine smells worse than it used to. Your excrement smells worse than it used to. Everything smells worse. And you're becoming a child again, an old child. If you're meditating, you can solve these problems. You become easy to look after. You don't forget yourself. You're easy to talk to. You have mindfulness and alertness. You don't create bad gamma or enmity with yourself, your children or your grandchildren. That's what it means to cultivate the Dhamma. The Dying In speaking of the inescapable truths of life to the lay supporters that he had known for many years, Lung Po could be direct and challenging, making them chuckle at their own foibles. But as they approached death, his tone would soften. On one occasion, Luang Po was asked to record a cassette message for an elderly, well-practiced lay disciple who was on her deathbed. He gave a discourse, later transcribed and translated as Our Real Home, that became one of his best-known Dhamma talks and that has, over the years, provided comfort and inspiration to a great many people. In the talk, Luang Po began by stressing the universal, inevitable nature of her coming death. Death was normal and natural and must be accepted. 
you should understand that even the Buddha himself, with his great store of accumulated virtue, could not avoid physical death. When he reached old age, he relinquished his body and let go of the heavy burden. Now you too must learn to be satisfied with the many years you've already depended on your body. Accept that it's enough. He said it was like a household utensil that starts off clean and shiny and over the years becomes chipped and cracked. It was an inevitable process. The Buddha said that conditions, whether internal bodily conditions or external conditions, are not self. Their nature is to change. Thoroughly contemplate this truth. However, the inevitable decay of the body did not have to affect the mind. By contemplating the true nature of things and abandoning attachments, the mind could free itself of this decline. We must be able to be at peace with the body, whatever state it's in. Now, as your body begins to run down and wear out with age, don't resist that. But also, don't let your mind deteriorate along with it. Keep the mind separate. Give energy to your mind by realizing the truth of the way things are. If your house is flooded or burnt to the ground, whatever the threat to it, let it affect only the house. If there is a flood, don't let it flood your mind. If there's a fire, don't let it burn your heart. Let it be merely the house, that which is outside of you, that is flooded or burnt. Now is the time to allow the mind to let go of its attachments. The Buddha said that what we can do is to contemplate the body and mind, to see their impersonality, that neither of them is me nor mine. They have only a provisional reality. It's like this house. It's only nominally yours. You couldn't take it with you anywhere. The same applies to your wealth, your possessions and your family. They are yours only in name. They don't really belong to you. They belong to nature. He taught her to examine her body to see how it was subject to change. He told her to look at the unattractive nature of the body and its lack of an abiding essence. There was nothing wrong with the body as such, he said. Our problems come through wrong thinking. Wanting the body not to die was like wanting a duck to be a chicken or wanting a river to reverse its course and flow towards its source. Having once been young, your body has become old and is now meandering towards its death. Don't go wishing it were otherwise. It's not something you have the power to remedy. The Buddha told us to see the way things are and then let go of our clinging to them. Take this feeling of letting go as your refuge. Meditation provided a refuge and, if well-developed, could provide some distance from the pain. Keep meditating, even if you feel tired and exhausted. 
Let your mind be with the breath. Take a few deep breaths and then establish the attention on the breath using the mantra Putto. Make this practice constant. The more exhausted you feel, the more subtle and focused your concentration must be so that you can cope with any painful sensations that arise. For an experienced meditator, great gains could be expected. As the breath becomes increasingly subtle, we keep following it, while at the same time awakening the mind. Eventually, the breath disappears altogether, and all that remains is that feeling of alertness. This is called meeting the Buddha. We have that clear, wakeful awareness called Putto, the one who knows, the awakened one, the radiant one. This is meeting and dwelling with the Buddha, with awareness and clarity. It was only the historical Buddha that passed away, the true Buddha, the Buddha that is clear, radiant knowing, can still be experienced and attained today. The task was to let go of everything that tied her to the world. He spoke at more length about accepting the naturalness of what was happening. Just think, could you exhale without inhaling? Would it feel good? Could you just inhale? We want things to be permanent, but they can't be. It's impossible. Once the breath has entered the body, it must leave. Having left, it returns, and that's natural, isn't it? Having been born, we get old, and then we die. It's completely natural and normal. All she needed now was this Buddha knowing. She had to let go of everything that tied her to the world. She had to relinquish her worries and concerns about her family. It wasn't that she should try to stop herself thinking about her loved ones, but she should think with wisdom, with an awareness of impermanence and the inevitability of separation from them. He explained the meaning of the word world. The world is whatever mental state is agitating you at the present moment. What are they going to do? When I'm gone, who'll look after them? How will they manage? This is all just the world. Even the mere arising of a thought fearing death or pain is the world. Throw the world away. The world is the way it is. If you allow it to dominate you, your mind becomes obscure and can't see itself. So whatever appears in the mind, just say, this isn't my business. It's impermanent unsatisfactory and not self. Now she had inner work to do, work that nobody else could do for her, and even those who loved her the most could not help her. She should focus herself on that work exclusively and leave the nursing of her body to others. Nothing around her was substantial. She needed to find her real home. Possessions, Pleasures and pains, relationships, all that had made up her life so far, had provided only temporary shelter. 
even her own body was now demonstrating that it was something she'd borrowed from nature and would soon have to return. He began to speak in ways that encouraged Nibbida, the disenchantment with the endless cycle of becoming. When you realized that's the way the world is, you feel that it's a wearisome place. You feel wearied and disenchanted. Being disenchanted doesn't mean you are averse. The mind is clear. It sees that there is nothing to be done to remedy this state of affairs. It's just the way the world is. Knowing in this way, you can let go of attachment. You can let go with the mind that is neither happy nor sad, but at peace with conditions through seeing with wisdom their changing nature. You see that if you have many possessions, you have to leave a lot behind. If you have a few, you leave few behind. Wealth is just wealth. Long life is just long life. They're nothing special. He exhorted her to let go of all that she still clung on to and go to her real home. Let go. Let go until the mind reaches that place that is free from advancing, free from retreating, and free from stopping still. Paw Puang It has been customary since the time of the Buddha for monks to visit lay people as they lay on their deathbed to help them leave this world for the next in the best possible way. In the last hours of his life, Paw Puang one of Luang Po's closest lay disciples received such a visit. Po Puang and his wife, Mei Tang, were the first lay supporters of Wat Ba Pong to come from the local town of Warin. After spending a rains retreat as a monk, Po Puang asked to disrobe, saying that the monastery still lacked many requisites and he wanted to encourage other people from Warin to help him raise the necessary funds. Before long, he had arranged the purchase of a monastery bell, and sometime later he offered a large grandfather clock for the Dhamma Hall. His greatest joy was to come when he, his family and friends, sponsored the casting of the brass Buddha statue that became the central feature of the Wat Ba Pong Dhamma Hall. After he disrobed, Poor Puang would still go to the Wat every observance day, keep the eight precepts, and listen to Dhamma. As his health declined in his later years, he offered to donate his skeleton to the monastery after his death as a memento mori and asked Lung Po to pick up his body straight after his death and to prepare the skeleton in the monastery. At the beginning of 1963, when his doctors announced that there was nothing more they could do for him, Po Puang's family took him out of the hospital to spend the last days of his life at home. On the 12th of January, Paw Puang's condition suddenly became much worse. He became unable to speak or open his eyes. He lay on his bed groaning incessantly. His wife and children sat with him, but were unable to relieve his pain. On the 13th of January, Luang Po, together with Ajahn Jan and a number of other monks, were offered their daily meal at the local army camp. After the meal was over, Luang Po told Colonel Sombun, the commanding officer, that he wanted to visit Po Puang and asked if he could arrange a truck. The colonel said he would order a smaller, more comfortable vehicle 
but Luang Po repeated that the truck would be fine. Po Nu, a lay attendant, asked him whether he was going to visit Po Puang or pick up his corpse. Luang Po said, pick up the corpse. Po Nu was puzzled. How are you going to do that? He's still alive. Do you think his family would just give him to you? He said to pick up his body after he's dead, didn't he? Lung Po was silent for a moment, and then he said, Alive or dead, we're picking him up today, before turning to a Jan Jan. Let's go. Po Puang is waiting. It was 12.45pm when they arrived at Po Puang's house and found him lying on his bed, surrounded by his family. Lung Po sat down on the bed, looking at the dying man for a few moments, and then... He stroked his face gently, calling him. Popuang, Popuang. After some time, Popuang opened his eyes and turned his head towards Luang Po. Popuang, do you know who I am? Popuang nodded his head and looked at Luang Po. While groaning sounds still came from his mouth, Tears started to flow down his cheeks. Luang Po put his hand on the old man's forehead and started to speak to him in a gentle but firm voice. Po Puang, you are a practitioner. You've been fighting this for a long time. When it's time for death to take your life, let it go. It belongs to death anyway. Why are you so possessive of it? You've borrowed something, and now you've got to return it. Keep the sound inside. Why are you letting it out? As Luang Po finished speaking, Po Puang's groaning immediately ceased. Luang Po continued, The body is impermanent and unreliable. It's not beautiful. It's old. You've used it for a long time. Go and look for a new body in that place that you saw in your vision when you were a monk. All this time, Luang Po was stroking Po Puang's face. He turned to Colonel Sombun. What time is it? 12.55, sir. Another five minutes and he'll be gone. Luang Po kept stroking Po Puang's face. At exactly 1 p.m., the dying man's eyes drooped and closed. Po Puang had died at peace. Killing the Defilements of Da Sui. After Luang Po became abbot of Wat Ba Pong, he did not completely abandon the practice of Tudong. In the early years in particular, when he was still in good health and there were few monks in the monastery, Every now and again, he would simply walk out of Wat Ba Pong and into the countryside. Usually, he would take monks with him, occasionally laymen. One of the laymen who accompanied him on such journeys later became a monk and one of the best-loved and colourful characters in the Sangha. Da Sui, quoted earlier describing his first meeting with Luang Po, had been a larger-than-life figure in the local community before meeting Luang Po his dissolute and criminal lifestyle, earning him the title of Nak Ling, 
This word nakling is difficult to translate. It lies on the spectrum between rascal and villain. Thaso was nearer the rascal end of the spectrum. His greed was legendary, and in his old age he had many stories to tell about how Luang Po had set about taming the coarse fellow he had once been. He took us on Tudong out to Bundarik. There were half a dozen of us to start with, but two ran away on the first night. As the day wore on, more and more ran away until in the end there was only me left. I was homesick. He said he'd take me for a year, and the more I wanted to go back, the further he'd take me. I just gave in and took what came. Wherever we went, I'd always have my eyes out for samoas. One night, he made me sleep by a bamboo clump, even though it was obviously the local toilet place and stunk of excrement. As the dew fell, the smell got even worse. When I complained, he scolded me. Don't make such a fuss. There's more crap in your intestines than there is out there. We reached Kumuang, and I came across a beautiful samore tree. He told me to climb up and shake the branches. The samores cascaded down. I made a bundle for them in my komar cloth. So now I had to carry Lungpo's bowl and the samores and his shoulder bag, which was also heavy. Lungpo didn't carry anything at all. As we walked along, I wanted to throw some of the samores away, but then we came to another tree, even more bountiful than the last one, and Lungpo had me collect another great pile. I thought that he would help me carry something, but he refused. I tasted a few of the samores from the first tree, a few from the second tree, and diarrhoea came on in a big way. My bags were too bulky and heavy to put down in time. Luang Po had to teach me the field method. There's no need to sit down. Stand and grasp hold of a tree, crap like a water buffalo. You can't do that, can't you? So I stood and defecated until my bowels were empty. Ten o'clock at night and we were still walking. He wouldn't rest. We reached a stream and he crossed it on a dead tree. I couldn't manage that and waded through the stream. The water was deep. My baggage was heavy and I couldn't get up the other bank. Luang Po had to climb down and drag me up. It was midnight before he would stop walking and I was completely soaked. This is so much suffering, I groaned. You've come on this trip to see suffering so that you can go beyond it. Lung Po said this as if it would be some kind of comfort to me. It's through seeing suffering that you become wise. I was exhausted. As he spoke, I started to drift off to sleep, and so he scolded me again. I'm giving you a teaching and you fall asleep. But as I lay there, I noticed he was using my kamar cloth to drive the mosquitoes away from my body. I slept for a long time. Whenever I opened my eyes, he was still sitting there. I couldn't help asking him, Lung Po, aren't you tired? You haven't lain down at all. He responded, the more tired I am, 
the better the meditation. And then he had another go at me. People without a thought in their heads are only interested in lying about. Even when you set them an example, they don't take it. Oh, come on, I'm tired. I couldn't stop myself arguing with him. Finally, I asked him if we could go back. All right, if that's what you want. He must have seen that I was really far gone. The next morning, Luang Po and Da Sui took the road back to the monastery. A car passed. In those days, there weren't any proper roads. Cars had to go along the buffalo tracks. When he saw us, the driver stopped and ran over to invite us to go with him. Luang Po gave a grunt of assent. I prepared to get in the car, but no. The driver came over to repeat his invitation. Luang Po gave another grunt, but he made no move to get into the car and it drove off without us. When I started grumbling, Luang Po turned on me. Have you come to ride in cars or walk on Tudong? Couldn't we at least have given them the bag of s'mores? And how do we know where he's going? By now I was getting angry. The car was moving farther and farther away. I said, Luang Po, are you trying to kill me or what? Luang Po replied, quick as a flash, of course. I've brought you with me to kill your defilement. Everything that comes out of your mouth is defilement. If you don't come and do something like this, then how will you ever be free from defilements? Try lying around and doing nothing and see if you get liberated. All that'll happen will be that suffering will overwhelm you. Suffering has to be known before you can go beyond it and realize happiness. I've brought you to make merit, to look for merit. Do you see that or not? Merit and defilement both lie within us. Cravings never come to an end. You make ten baht and you want a hundred. You get a hundred and you want a thousand. Now look, your craving has stopped because you feel nothing but physical tiredness. You don't want anything at all. If you did get anything, what would you do with it? Don't you realize that you're going to die? Each day, try to think of death. You're going to die, you know that, don't you? Luang Po went on like this at great length before turning around to question me further. Do rich people die? Do poor people die? Yes, they all die, I answered irritably. Well then, don't you think that you're going to die? The poor die, and so do the rich. You have to be liberated before you can be happy. So what's to be done? He ended up asking me a question as usual. Become a monk, I said, thinking it was a pretty intelligent answer. If you become a monk, will you be free of suffering if you don't practice? Gamma means action. We do good and we do evil. If we do good, then we get good results. If we do evil, then we get evil results. So what's there to do except to do good? And that's what you're doing. I've brought you to do good because passing through trials and tribulations will lead you beyond suffering. That afternoon, 
we came to a village and stopped for a rest in one of the adjoining fields. There were people around grazing their cattle, and when they came over, Lung Po called out to me, Get some soft drinks. Bring over three or four packs. I got angry. I wanted to keep the money, and he was having me buy drinks for buffalo herders. In the end, they couldn't finish it all, and he told them to take the remainder home with them. When we got back to the Wat, he asked me, How much money is left? We need bricks and cement. I said it would have been a better idea to keep the whole lot for bricks and cement instead of spending it on soft drinks. No, that would have been a bad idea because we wouldn't have practiced giving and the buffalo grazers wouldn't have had their drink. They were tired and they must have been thirsty. When you drank, you were refreshed, weren't you? Yes, I replied sheepishly. Well then, he said, and started off on another sermon. When we make others happy, it makes us happy. When you've received that kind of happiness, then what more do you want? You have to raise your mind up high. When the floods come, only the houses built on higher land stay dry. If you indulge in low, coarse things, then your mind becomes baser and whatever you do, you'll never see the Dhamma.